Welcome to another episode of Shit Platypus Says, episode 47. The commentary on the commentary of the left. My name is Rebecca Parler, and I am one of your co-hosts. We have a three-part episode for you today. SPS host Andreas Wintersberger and Platypus member Sebastian Vogel interview Russian Marxist intellectual Boris Kargalitsky about the Ukraine war and the left in Russia. Then, Lisa and I catch up with founding Platypus member Chris Cutrone to talk about the up-and-coming summer reading group about classical social theory. But first, Pam and Sophia catch up with the Depp versus Her trial. Hi, Pam. Hello. The Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial is coming to a close. It's winding down. Yeah, I think they just had closing arguments. So I don't know if by the time this goes live, they may have come to a final decision. Yeah, I guess. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, I mean, certainly public opinion seems to have turned against um, Amber Heard. Yeah. She was once the darling of the Me Too movement. I didn't realize how involved she was. Like, it was like she did really um, become like a public figure. What do you mean? She got, she was actually involved with the movement officially? Well, the ACLU stood behind her. So, I guess, like, just some ins and outs. Like, this is a defamation lawsuit. Mm-hmm that is claiming that Amber Heard's op-ed to one of the newspapers, um, which we find out was actually penned by the ACLU, basically pointed out that she's a victim of domestic abuse. And while she doesn't name Johnny Depp in the article, it's pretty clear that she's speaking about her marriage. She also, I think went on the record calling herself a victim of sexual violence and accusing Depp of sexual violence. So there's there's this ongoing accusations by her which have become public. And one of the reasons why she doesn't name him is because she had... On their divorce, they signed papers, right? That they wouldn't talk in a derogatory way about each other after the breakup yeah i think that right so she was there was a settlement after they got divorced for like seven million and Mm. like in part it it said that they wouldn't speak yeah derogatorily of of each other and then she did that so he lost a lawsuit in the uk um for libel Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so now i guess he's kind of trying it now in a different country and so what I mean by that is that she became sort of like a public figure in and through the Me Too movement, giving interviews um, about like her experience and the whole public persona, her her brand, if you will, kind of blew up more through that public involvement um, as a kind of spokesperson for domestic yeah. abuse. Uh, my students are very concerned <laughs> with this. They're like, what do they say? Well, they're kind of disturbed. So all of them have been watching it. This came up in class because I I was like asking them what TV shows they watch or like what are they tuning in these days? 
and like several of them were like the amber heard case they the, tune into youtube to the trial yeah they're just That's tuning they into tune the into. trial yeah and so one young woman was like in my classroom she was like i'm just so disturbed like you know we just seem to have completely forgotten this whole like believe women thing but i don't know like i know that there were problems with that but like i don't know it just seems like now it's swung the other way like the pendulum swung the other way and then people are just like oh she's just a liar she's just awful she's just an abuser he's just a victim and what I told them at the time, I was like, well, guys, this is kind of like, you know, the O.J. Simpson case where it's like not about O.J. It's like it's about O.J., but it's not about O.J. Like there's some kind of public mm. reckoning going on here. Oh, for sure. There's a public reckoning going on here. Yeah, I think it's with the Me Too movement. I think that's sort of what is happening. And even I mean, and I think that the lawyers obviously are also leaning into that um, Johnny Depp's lawyers in this closing statement one of them yeah. was like this is like me too but without the me too what he means by that is that she spoke out but then they've had like witness after witness people that have dated johnny depp and etc like no one's been emboldened by her declaration to speak up and say yeah. me too um she's sort of standing alone like when i spoke to my students about it i had to be careful because i was like obviously like domestic abuse is very serious and you mm-hmm. don't really know what 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 happens in people's homes and like the public trial is you know can be distorting um Mm -hmm. but so i just had to kind of make it not about like what may or may not have happened and like why are why is so much public why is it happening yeah and why is it happening now yes yeah yeah i guess like depp's lawyers his like their final statements were like they were painting they were saying like well he's not a saint and there is substance abuse abuse and alcoholism um, and this kind of thing but that is different from being a physical abuser and um and to paint someone as that his career is at stake and things like this but yeah no I agree with what you're saying in terms of how do you view it as a phenomenon of history um as opposed to actually trying to get into the um nitty-gritty of like who's right I mean their relationship looked look messy yeah that relationship was <laughs> fucked up they were only married for 15 months but I guess they they went out for a while before that it was a short marriage one of the things that I've seen being passed around like online like the New York New York magazine had like an article that was like defending Amber Heard like let's believe women like you know just kind of defending right like taking the other side saying like uh, it's just appalling that people are just believing this man, whatever. But one of the things that always gets brought up uh, is that why is he taking her to court? Can he just let things be, move on? He wasn't even mentioned by name. But from what I've been reading and like listening onto these podcasts, I was like catching up. He did arguably like lost several opportunities oh yeah he lost fantastic beast three yeah they replaced him with mads mickelson right i don't know anything about this franchise <laughs> but <laughs> i heard that he lost this and then also pirates of the caribbean so he disney like decided after the op-ed was published not for disney anymore not for disney anymore so like he's been tried in the court of public opinion and he lost in that court and then these employers decided to terminate his contract and so now i think that is why he is in court meaning at least it's a huge reason why he's in court 
Yeah, a hundred percent. But it's funny now, like when I'm on YouTube, you know, YouTube pops up with ads for films to buy, and it's all like Pirates of the Caribbean. So <laughs> <laughs> they got your number. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know how I feel about this. I do think it's kind of hairy, but I honestly, like, I'll just say it, like, it, it does seem like that was a really crazy and fucked up relationship. Um, but I don't think mm. she's doing herself any favor, but by uh like she's not good on the stand no but maybe originally um when she you know when it first kicked off and she first wrote that op-ed she thought she was doing herself a favor and um was not panned out like that i guess so did the aclu i mean like that that tidbit of information coming out of the trial was interesting right that they so she'd pledged (laughs) pledged yeah. Not donated, <laughs> as we heard. She Is it pledged seven million, three point five million out of that. So half of the settlement um, that was going to go to the ACLU, and the other mm-hmm. half to some other charity, I believe. And she, because she was like, I don't want any of this money. Um, and so she pledged three point five million, and it seems like there was a quid pro quo at work, and the ACLU penned that op-ed with the understanding that she was giving that money to them so that's what come mm-hmm. that's that's part of what's come out in this case which i don't know just like raises some questions about the aclu's choices and who they choose to be their public spokesman and how the yeah. money works behind these organizations you know so it's airing some dirty laundry at these institutions i guess for sure that yeah it's still it's it's a very sad thing to watch and i wish them both well going forward (laughs) (laughs) like even even i got to cut this bit but even when you're watching amber heard like it's sad right like i don't know yeah well it's it's um there is something kind of gross about watching someone's relationship go down in flames as a form as a form of public entertainment like it is kind of gross to see how people are like I've not really tuned into the trial itself, but I've seen clips from the things that people have shared the most. I've saw I've saw clips of her on the stand and him on the stand, and then Saturday Night Live got involved and did like a whole okay, skit. I haven't watched it. Yeah, well, so um, one of the things that happened uh, was that uh, <clears throat> apparently in their relationship, she may have left a how did Johnny put it? fecal delivery <laughs> in their of love bed <laughs> she, like, <laughs> she took a shit on the bed after an argument and so snl had like a whole skit of like you know typical kind of white people are crazy kind of skit like the first guy walks into the bedroom after they both left for work and it's like a cleaning lady or a personal assistant or something and she's like what the fuck she's like i'm not cleaning that shit they don't pay me for this and then she calls the next person in the room it's <laughs> just like he's like hey maria you gotta take care of this <laughs> and the person's like what the fuck like i'm not taking man get the gardener in here like jose <laughs> like, and he just goes on and on they just look at each other like what the fuck these white people <laughs> <laughs> I just walked out. <laughs> to their credit, it was probably one of the funnier skits that I've seen in a long time. Is there anything the left has been saying about this? Mm-hmm. I've seen this New York Magazine article, which was shared through Instagram by some people as a kind mm-hmm. of like, have we forgotten, right? Like, did we forget the lessons? 
don't like, yeah. you know, this kind of voice. And I think there may or may not have been like a reference to Roe v. Wade. It was like, you know, like we need like feminism to be back. Like this is an indication that we need to double down. You know, we're losing gains. We're losing gains. Me too. Roe v. Wade. Like this kind of call to arms in that sense. So maybe it palpably does feel a bit like the Me Too movement. I'm not saying that I'm not making a claim about her innocence or anything like that. Like, um, as far as I can see, like it is stacking up that um, it's not going to pan out in her favor. But like, why is this kind of like Me Too wave like blowing over a little bit? Well, what's the last time, what's the last thing we've seen before this that had anything to do with Me Too? It's been a while. Oh, the the whole um. Oh, what is his name? Epstein. Oh, Epstein. Oh, yes. And then and, and then and his, his former girlfriend. His former girlfriend, a woman, that's it, locked away. A woman right? who helped. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like facilitated. Yeah. Who facilitated it? Who actually used the fact that she was a woman to lure these unsuspecting young women who trusted her. Yeah. Um, so. I guess things were already kind of turning, right? The fact that she Mm. became such a hated character also showed Mm -hmm. this other side of it. Maybe don't believe that woman. (laughs) Yeah, I just feel like there was this reckoning and then the Weinstein trials wrapped up. Mm -hmm. And after that, things were quiet for a bit. Biden is in office. Biden's in office. Well, that's right. That's why it got quiet because all of his um, victims of sexual abuse or alleged victims of sexual abuse came out, right? That woman that said that um, Biden groped her and that was swept under the rug. Remember this? Like Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. lead up to the election and all of a sudden people were changing their tune. They're like, she's not credible. She's just doing this to get attention, whatever, right? And it's like, well, you can't have Anything but Trump. Anything but Trump, right? Like, you can't have it both ways, man. Like, you either believe women or you don't. So, I don't know, honestly. But it, it is interesting that the New York Magazine article is like, like, their response is, we're under attack. Like, our movement is under attack. And we need to stand up for women again yeah feels hollow the kind of claim to like believe women at all costs you know like as in what does that mean like but yeah don't believe hillary (laughs) (laughs) this is where you chant lock her up sophia (laughs) (laughs) i don't feel that emotional about jk (laughs) that's right (laughs) yeah well well i guess it'll be over soon guys so just yeah we'll have something else to talk about (laughs) yeah bye Sophia bye Ben Here today on our podcast, um, I have Sebastian Vogel. Sebastian Vogel is a member of the Platypus Affiliate Society based in Germany. We have with us today Professor Boris Kagalitsky. Um, Professor Boris Kagalitsky is a Russian Marxist intellectual, 
Previously, he was a student of art criticism and he was imprisoned for two years for quote-unquote anti-Soviet activities, but he was also on, uh, imprisoned uh, several times after the fall of the Soviet Union. Kagalitsky is a professor at the Moscow School for Social and Economic Sciences, named after Theodor Shainin. He is also the editor of Russian-speaking YouTube channel Rapkor and web journal. And last but not least, Professor Kagalitsky also spoke on several panels organized by the Platypus Affiliated Society and was published uh, several times in our monthly journal, The Platypus Review. We will put links to all of these contents in the description of this episode so everybody can find it. Professor Kagalitsky, thanks a lot for agreeing to speak again with the Platypus Affiliated Society. It's a pleasure for me. By the way, they announced that I am now a foreign agent, by the way, another. So I have to register as a foreign agent. A uh, foreign agent, uh, most people who are called foreign agents, they just leave the country immediately to avoid further problems. And I said, I'm going to be the last to turn off the light, you know, if anything happens. <laughs> In a YouTube interview you gave to Breakthrough News at the beginning of March this year, you mentioned that uh, with regards to the war in Ukraine, that it is not so much that the Ukrainian side is winning, but rather that the Russian side is losing, morally, psychologically and politically. You also mentioned that uh, the Russian military and economy does not have the resources to fight a longer war. So my question is, how would you assess the situation now after three months since the beginning of the invasion, since the beginning of the war? And what would it mean for the Russian left if Russia loses the war in Ukraine? First of all, uh, the developments of the two months of war uh, basically prove uh, that this prediction was correct, that Russian military uh, didn't have the potential to win the war. Uh, actually, they don't even have the potential to fight a long war. Uh, definitely, the military didn't have the plans, the contingency planning, the resources, the, the personnel, uh, the training, the logistics uh, for a protracted war. Uh, so they're definitely on the losing side. And the very fact that they continue uh, to um, attack on uh, several fronts of this war uh, only shows their desperation. But we have to understand the specific sociology of this war. First of all, it's probably the first war actually in Russian history when uh, Russia fights with contract army. A Russian army is based on contracted people, not on draftees. So when they uh, speak about the tradition of Russian army and whether they speak about how great Russian army used to be in, in the previous centuries and so on, it was a different army. So uh, last time Russia used to have mercenary army was in the 17th century, actually. Since then, it never had mercenary army. It had some kind of recruited army and draftees and so on. And uh, the important thing in, in, in that sense is that the sociology of this army is totally different compared to the previous Soviet and Russian armies, uh, because previous armies were very much connected to the society. Uh, this time it's not. Actually, it's something which United States experienced after the war in Vietnam, when they abolished draft, also for social and uh, political and uh, 
uh, I should say, in, in some sense, uh, ideological reasons, and replaced uh, that with what they call in, in the United States poverty draft. So that poor people, uh, especially from racial minorities and so on, uh, immigrant minorities joined the army. So when there were losses, the rest of the society didn't really care or didn't really care much. So this is very much what's happening now in Russia, because Russian society is extremely fragmented, extremely divided and atomized. Traditionally, there is some kind of ideology that Russia is militarily very strong and so on. But again, here is another problem, which is very specific. When we are speaking about historic Russia, or of the Russian army of the 19th century, even 18th century, and Soviet army, that was a different country. It was a country which included, for example, Ukraine and uh, Belarus and a few other places. So in that sense, uh, there are already uh, some people saying that there are not so much Russia and Ukraine fighting uh, each other, but two Russians fighting each other. So uh, Russia represents two pieces of old Russia, two pieces of old Russian empire or two pieces of the former Soviet Union. Both of them are, uh, in, many way, in many ways, are very similar. Uh, I want just one more time to come back to your interview with uh, Breakthrough News. Um, you said every time that Russia loses a war, there's a potential for reform and revolution. Uh, you mentioned the Crimean War in the 1850s, in which Russia was defeated and which led to the abolishment of the serfdom in Russia in the 1860s. Uh, then you mentioned the First World War in the course of which the Bolsheviks came to power and finally the war in Afghanistan in the 1980s, which led to the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which was hijacked by neoliberal agencies, as you said. Uh, so with regards to the war in Ukraine, you said that it was an attempt to avoid reform and revolution. Um, but what are the reforms and the revolution on the table then um, that was attempted to avoid? And who would responsibly lead these efforts in the absence of an international left? Well, first of all, uh, definitely the situation is very difficult because uh, it's not only the left which is weak uh, in Russia. Actually, all political forces and uh, all political segments of the society are very weak. And by the way, uh, in some sense, it's a good news because... It means that uh, after the war, when the defeat would become uh, visible and accepted as a fact uh, by the society, uh, there would be a, uh, an absolute need to reorganize uh, the country and the society. And in that sense, the left is no weaker than anybody else. So the left uh, is used to feel itself weak and defeated and uh, uh, unable to influence developments around it. And I think we have to end, end up with something different. Uh, well, we have to basically uh, start being a part of the real political process rather than observers and commentators. And uh, I think we have a chance. We have a chance. It doesn't mean that we have uh, tremendous chances, but we have a real chance because society, first of all, is really fed up with the uh, inequality and um, social contradictions. The level of social contradiction is very high. And even the pro-Western liberal commentators and uh, oppositions, oppositionists 
uh, agree that something has to be done with uh, uh, with the level of inequality and uh, social injustice and so on. Though in fact uh, they do not go further than uh, promise some minor uh, social reforms, uh, but at least uh, it's on the agenda some kind of social reform. Uh, even within the uh, liberal perspective is on the agenda. Something has to be done with the pension system, something has to be done with social security. And uh, also, interestingly enough, uh, what's happening is that the issue of uh, nationalization and confiscation is on the table because thanks to the West, the piece of good news is that the property of Russian oligarchs is uh, uh, confiscated in the West. Well, okay, it would be better if it were were confiscated uh, by the Russian people, but at least somebody somebody did the right thing finally. But then we have uh, the the real problem: the palaces and the uh, and, and the yachts and uh, uh, villas, uh, the real property like companies, like oil fields, banks, the real stuff, which is uh, still in Russia and which still is uh, in their hands. Something which the society basically accepts there is a kind of um, sort of uh, consensus in the society that this property has to be taken um, taken over by the by the society by the state. Interestingly enough, the pro-Kremlin media also keeps saying that some nationalization nationalization is necessary, but they say we don't have to nationalize our oligarchs. We have to nationalize foreign companies. So don't touch our oligarchs. Uh, their property is sacred, but uh, if foreigners are leaving, we have to nationalize uh, foreign companies, which probably is not going to work. But the point is that the very idea of nationalization is on the table. It's very much on the agenda. It's very much part of the dominant discourse on any side of the uh, political spectrum. And then the final thing, why there is an objective need for the left, is that the kind of uh, economic crisis which is looming in Russia, uh, is the crisis of uh, economic disintegration. Uh, logistical uh, chains are, uh, are destroyed in many ways. The, uh, vital supplies are not coming. And uh, so far, by the way, Russian economy still stays afloat, partly because of uh, a lot of stuff which was accumulated in the stores uh, for years, it's another very specific characteristics uh, characteristic of of Russian economy, uh, which uh, uh, started already in the third times when every enterprise started to store as much as possible any resources available. They started to uh, pile up resources. For, I don't know that, that was part of the deficit mentality, the shortage mentality. So that uh, so they pile up enormous resources, but now they're running out of it, and then. Uh, what we would need uh, uh, is some kind of planning and uh, redistribution of resources in a centralized and organized way because it's not possible to do through the free market. Free market is not going to work in the situation of that level of uh, shortages. And uh, of course, uh, the question is whether this is necessarily a leftist agenda because very much of it, it's, it can be some kind of centralist, statist, paternalist uh, agenda, right? So this is exactly where the real struggle is going to, uh, to happen because uh, one absolutely necessary element is missing from this picture is the democratic participation of the people. 
uh, without it, uh, the class nature of uh, of these policies remains completely open, completely uh, up to to contest to be contested. And um, well, but here is where this that's where the struggle is going to take place. Thank you for that. I would like to bring in a more international perspective, since you also raised um, the ties um, the Russian economy has to the West, its dependency, etc. Uh, with regards to the Western left, a lot of leftist groups in the West, but especially in America, for example, anti-imperialist leftist groups or Trotskyist groups, consider American imperialism as the greatest obstacle to proletarian revolution. My question is, what do you think are the greatest obstacle towards the proletarian revolution, towards world revolution? And what do you think are the greatest obstacles today towards the re-establishment of a Marxist left internationally? Well, let's start uh, with a little bit of history, because if we take, uh, say, 1917, it would be also completely true that, say, in 1917, it was not Russian imperialism, which was the main obstacle uh, to uh, social progress, but the main obstacle globally uh, remained uh, British imperialism just by the very fact that it was the biggest empire and still was the, the hegemonic power of capitalist uh, uh, world system. Nevertheless, uh, the revolution happened not in Britain, not in France, not even in Germany, though in Germany it actually started after the defeat of, uh, of the empire, but it started in Russia. Uh, this is a dialectic of um, social and political change. In that sense, uh, the revolutionary change does not start at the very heart of the system. And it's not necessarily the defeat of the, of the center which leads to social change, but rather the collapse of the medium level of the, of the system, the middle level of the, of the global hierarchy, which, which leads to, to changes. So in that sense, uh, if we take it historically in the long run, I am certain that, yes, it's absolutely true that uh, American imperialism remains in the long run the main force of capitalism. There is no doubt about it because it's the hegemonic country, the hegemonic state of, uh, of capitalism. And uh, yes, in that sense, uh, American left has its own problems and it has to change things at home. But... Uh, at this stage, the weakest link, using Lenin's terms, the weakest links, link uh, seems to be Russia again. It's also another paradox that Russian revolution is not completed in the historic sense that we have to finish, finish the labor, finish the job which was started in 1917. It is an unfinished labor uh, because we now are in the phase of restoration, if you, if you are taking revolution historically. We are in, now in the phase of restoration. It's not only restoration of capitalism, but it's very much, very much an attempt to restore the uh, the old uh, kind of imperial um, hierarchical um, structure of the Russian state and the, uh, and and Russian society. So it's very much the second edition of uh, Tsarist Empire, which Putin tries to to build. Although it's not going to work, that's the point. It's not going to work, and in that sense, I made this parallel many years ago. I think we're very close to that point. Said so that what we are now going to face is uh, the need for a, a glorious revolution of Russian socialism, in a way. You see, 
so it's not only my point of view, there is also this very, very um, important and very prominent Russian uh, leftist historian, Alexander Shubin, who developed this theory of revolutionary phases and uh, shows that, uh, uh, well, great, he speaks about a few great revolutions which are essential for the emergence of new, uh, new mode of production historically. Uh, and uh, he uh, insists that, well, there are certain phases which all great revolutions have to pass through. So in that sense, uh, he, he very much shows the same, same approach. So, so that Russian revolution is not yet finished. But we have to understand the importance of uh, uh, demand for every, uh, every left-wing movement in the sense that uh, for us, it is what's happening in Russia now is getting more and more important because we are now very close to a situation when we can be actors, not just commentators. Uh, and I think the, uh, that is very important for everyone everywhere uh, in the world to restructure the left in such a way that it should be actors uh, in the political process rather than observers, commentators, and, uh, well, okay, critics. Uh, we need something else. And maybe in some sense, it's going to be a global process because Another point, which I already made a few times, and I will have to make it again, is that though the, the war, the actual fighting war, uh, the hot war actually is, is local. Yes, it's between Russia and Ukraine so far, and I hope very much it will stay there. But the economic consequences of the war are already absolutely global. So in that sense, in economic terms, uh, this conflict already operates as a world war or, or as a global war. Uh, economic consequences for Western Europe, uh, for, uh, for the Middle East, with the, the, the danger of famine, uh, real danger of famine uh, looming. Uh, looming. Uh, uh, but also for the, for, for the United States uh, uh, as well, to a less extent though. Uh, these economic consequences would be quite quite impressive, and uh, they would lead to serious social upheavals and uh, social economic changes becoming necessary. One question, since you mentioned this, um, the question of becoming actors again, like how do you reflect on like the history of the last ten years when millennials joined like the Labour Party or the DSA um, in the US? Um, and try to become actors, and like, how do you reflect upon this, like, um, history? Well, I think, I, I know this debate, and uh, the, the millennial left, and so on. Actually, I was, I participated at one of these Platypus meetings when it was discussed, uh, uh, I think, in Germany some years ago. But, you see here, we have the problem that, uh, if we uh, take the situation as it used to be, say, when Jeremy Corbyn was, for example, running for, uh, for leadership uh, position in, in the Labour Party, uh, that was a real option on the table, as well as Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign in the United States. Uh, the problem is that uh, these uh, campaigns and these uh, uh, projects failed. They failed, and that, that's obvious. And we should not just try to repeat them again, uh, at least without, at least not without learning uh, the lessons from these failures. And uh, uh, the problem is not that 
these problems failed. I think, you know, uh, I love this uh, uh, phrase uh, by Jean-Paul Sartre, who said that uh, uh, failure after failure goes forward progress of the humanity. Uh, so uh, it's not a problem that there were failed projects, that there were uh, failed attempts, uh, because they were also very important. They were great attempts, actually. Uh, but uh, the question is whether we learn lessons and whether we change ourselves and whether we are uh, capable of not just trying to repeat time and again something which already once failed. But here is another problem that this is one reason why I'm a little bit more optimistic about Russia uh, than about uh, Western countries. Uh, because in Russia, what we see is enormous crisis which destroys the institutional framework of politics. So all parties are all now collapsing. Uh, there is the, the, the official party, which is uh, United Russia, which is not collapsing because it is uh, just part of the state. But once the state uh, gets defeated, also, uh, that would uh, mean the end of this party as well. But, for example, the Communist Party and the uh, uh, Communist Party of Russian Federation is in, in deep trouble. It's falling apart because their leadership is very much with Putin. The rank and file is uh, increasingly, the activist rank and file at least, is increasingly opposed to the war. There are uh, masses of people who are leaving the party. There are still a lot of people who are within the party and are against the, the leadership. And, and so, so the party is disintegrating. Uh, what is happening with the uh, Social Democratic Party, just Russia, it's, it's something absolutely, uh, absolutely um, disastrous because uh, the leaders of this party, they really behave as, as if they're going to prove this, uh, this all Zinovia thesis about social fashion. You know, it's it's like this kind of Zinovia white thesis about social fascism just uh, coming true finally finally because the just read the statements of uh, uh, Sergei Mironov who is the head of the party these are just absolutely incredible statements about the need to kill more people destroy Ukraine uh, uh, reintroduce death penalty uh, uh, absolutely incredible statements uh and of course people uh who are real uh, social democrats or socialists within the party are <laughs> just uh leaving the party there is no way they can stay within such a party uh, so just uh, today uh, my good friend and colleague anna Ochkina, who used to be the the, the head of a piazza regional regional uh, branch of the party uh who originally who already who already had uh, left the, the position in the party. Now uh, she signed a resignation letter to leave the party, saying that, well, it's the, I joined the Socialist Party, not a national socialist party. Uh, so, uh, uh, so you see, uh, uh, so now so we, we have this kind of empty field. The field is empty. The field is... Uh, as uh, up to be to be uh, reconstructed, remapped, and so on. While if we are taking uh, Western countries, uh, the uh, the situation is different because no matter what you do in Britain, uh, you have to deal with the Labour Party. No matter what you do with uh, in America, you have to deal with the fact that there is still this big structure of uh, the Democratic Party, and there is the the 
there is an enormous part of the left which is still kind of hostage of the Democratic Party. They're, uh, they're, they're kind of locked within the Democratic Party, and uh, it's not very clear how to, to make the to get them out, how to, to to make them free again, get them out of this hostage position. Something has to be done about it, but okay, there is a the problem. Uh, things are a little bit better in France because in France, ironically, it's strange thing, though France is so different compared to Russia, but the, uh, the political situation is similar in many ways. The political party system in France collapsed. So we see that Socialist Party, where is the Socialist Party? There used to be the great party of Jean Jaurès and so on. Where is the party? It, it had less than 2% of the vote. Uh, with the a communist party situation is not much better, maybe 2.2% of the vote about that. So uh, old parties are completely knocked down. And uh, so that's why it's interesting what uh, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon is doing, trying to build a new left uh, around himself. But there are also problems on that side because Mélenchon is trying to build up a populist movement, a populist movement which uh, is very much organized around himself. And this is the weak side of this uh, approach. So we have uh, to do something different. What I formulated in my book, Between Class and Discourse, which was published in English, I think uh, five years ago, I already wrote, and I think I, 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 I keep thinking that I was correct, saying that we have to accept the fact that there is going to be a, some kind of populist left uh, but we have to build a class core within the populist left. We have to try to build, the, to consolidate the class core, uh, the class agenda within, the, uh, within the, some kind of broader coalition of populist left, because so far we cannot avoid having this populist left as, as uh, the kind of fact we are facing. There is the kind of the nature of current poli political life, political culture is that populist formations are now uh, kind of demanded by the uh, by the society but the problem is that we have to see the the shortcomings the problems with these formations populism is a very dangerous form of political organization just to to make it more maybe clear like what do you think are the lessons we have to learn from this past experience like corbin sanders etc uh, it is very clear. By the way, we did similar things. We did similar things. We have, we had to work with some good guys within uh, Capera, within the official Communist Party, and sometimes with uh, within the Social Democratic Party, just Russia. Where uh, that's why so many people are now leaving because uh, they entered these parties, uh, hoping uh, to use them as, not necessarily to change them, but at least use them as platforms. To get elected or to to deliver the goods to the, in terms of uh, practical things to be done, right? Uh, so unlike you join some of these uh, formations, you cannot have a chance to enter the political space to become visible, uh, because there is a problem. There is a mass of people who would probably be happy to support you, but first of all, they have to learn about your existence, and in that sense. Uh, that step was inevitable, but then everybody, time and again, including our good friends in, inside the 
KPRF, the CP, they all became hostages. They became hostages and to, of the party apparatus, of the party establishment, and to make things worse, not only they behaved hostages, but I hate to say they liked it. They liked it. <laughs> uh, it uh, uh, saves you from, from making very hard decisions and and it saves you from, from much of your responsibility. So, so that's, that's the problem. It's not only that you're taken hostage, but this is the kind of Stockholm syndrome uh, politically, which uh, is very typical for, for these people. They, be, they, they, they really liked the, <laughs> the experience of hostages. And that's why uh, I think we definitely have to build up a network structures and network movements uh, which can uh, function on their own. We, we should not become hostages of the party apparatus and, uh, and um, actual machines also and so on, or uh, just uh, loyal followers of the populist leaders. Some, there are some good populist leaders. Okay, I, I'm happy with, with that. They, these are people who we're going to support, including some people in Russia. Uh, but we should not forget that these are just uh, populists. You see? So in that sense, organization at the grassroots level, uh, the real class organization is necessary. And, and it's also uh, not just about organizing class. It's about, in some ways, building the class, rebuilding the class, because the class itself is uh, atomized, fragmented, and so on. To overcome that, you need politics. Politics is already a way uh, to rebuild, consolidate, and uh, restructure the social class. So in that sense, it's not just social class functions itself spontaneously, and then it generates the party. Uh, no, it's not that easy. It would have been much easier if it were like that, but it's, uh, it's a two-way street. My last question would be like um, a more broader one. What do you think is the relationship of Marxism to war and capitalism? And how can we overcome the necessity of war? How do you think the left should oppose this war? First of all, I hate to say, but at this moment, we have to see two things. Why I said I hate to say, because two things. One thing is that, well, both states, whether Ukrainian state or Russian state, both camps in, in a broader sense, have... Uh, no reason to, uh, there is no reason to see them as uh, progressive or positive. So in that sense, we see both, both camps as not only capitalist, not only capitalist, but neither of these camps is progressive, uh, even within uh, capitalist terms. That's very important. But, but, also on the other hand, we know that the side which started the war and which invaded the other country is uh, Putin's Russia. So in that sense, we uh, we have a, a, a you see because there are two ways of putting uh, thing uh, examining things. Uh, on the one hand, there is this kind of classical way of analyzing uh, conflicts. There are it's an interimperialist goal, and uh, there are no good guys. All guys are bad guys. Okay. And the other way is to say, okay, uh, there is a struggle where we have to side with one of the fighters with one side, stay with one, support one side, which is more progressive or which is more uh, 
uh, more kind of uh, sympathetic, uh, which, which generates more sympathy with us, right? So there are two ways. Either we say both sides are equally bad, or we are saying that, uh, well, one side is, 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 is the good guys, right? And neither, neither approach works at this point. Because on the one hand, yes, we are saying that both sides are uh, reactionary, uh, but we cannot say that we have to blame them equally. The blame doesn't, uh, doesn't, uh, is not shared equally. Uh, it's an un, uh, uneven, uneven balance in that sense. So uh, paraphrasing uh, George Orwell, uh, all, all participants are bad, but some are worse than others. And that makes our situation very, uh, very uneasy, as, as you see. It, it makes you very uneasy uh, because, uh, uh, for example, we are definitely uh, against uh, the war on the Russian side, and we we think that Russia uh, uh, and is not only going to lose the war, but it's going to it, it's uh, it will be good for Russia if it loses the war. You see, you see, but it doesn't mean that we are going to say we want uh, this current Ukrainian government to. To triumph, we very much hope that Ukraine change as well after the war. But but it's, it's a different story. It's a different story, and it's very hard to say whether it's going to come true or not. So that's one thing. Uh, the answer uh, to wars, uh, the war, the world without wars is the the world of uh, of socialist uh, democracy. The world of social democracy. The world which is organized through some kind of global. Uh, uh, global commonwealth, global commonwealth of, of uh, socialist and democratic nations. That's the only way. And uh, there is still a very long road, very long way to go. But I think it's the only way that is absolutely visible. That's the only way because all other ways uh, to build uh, the architecture of uh, global se uh, security, uh, they didn't happen to work or they worked for a while and then. Uh, then they disintegrated because of the competitive logic of capitalism. So we need a society and a commonwealth of societies which are based on cooperation, which doesn't mean that we want to abolish the market altogether and socialist cooperation and social democracy, socialist democracy to, to change the, the, the global uh, international relations as well. But this is, this is very far away from now. And uh, in that sense, uh, what we need is also we need to fight against our own capitalism domestically everywhere. And we need to be opened uh, by uh, these uh, rivalries. So this is the most important thing, because I think that mm, you see uh, very often the left uh, just uh, is satisfied with uh, some kind of nice formula. So. We say both sides are good or both sides are bad or both sides are capitalists. And, and now we are, uh, I don't know, now we are uh, calling for the people's uh, democratic uh, governments to be installed, say, in Ukraine and Russia. Let's uh, hope for socialist Ukraine and socialist Russia. Great. What are we going to do to achieve that? You see? So because it's typical for the left, you, you make a statement. You give some analysis, and then you go home or you go to sleep, you know. And then uh, exactly the problem begins. It's just the very beginning of the problem. If you're going to say, well, let's 
the, the answer, the real answer is socialist Ukraine and socialist Russia kind of rebuilding uh, friendship, blah, blah, blah. Uh, fine, I'm, I'm okay with that. But what are we going to do practically to achieve that goal? And, and uh, this is where the real politics begins. All right. Thanks a lot for taking the time for this very interesting interview. And uh, take care. Take care. Bye. 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 sitting down today with Chris Catrone, who is the chief pedagogue and founding member of Platypus. And Chris, we asked you to come to talk with us about the summer reading group, What is Society, that is going to start very soon in our English-speaking areas. In previous years, we were there were summer reading groups, for example, in 2017. We had one on Lenin on the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution in 2018, one um, in the occasion of the 50 years of 1968. We had one on Stalinism in 2019 and on Kautsky in 2020, at the tail end of the millennial left's neo-social democracy turn. So maybe you can talk about what our summer reading groups in general do aim to and why we are, as an organization that focuses on the history of the left and Marxism, um, that we are holding a summer reading group on classical social theory this year. The idea came from basically a kind of a missing piece in our pedagogy. So a lot of our summer reading group topics are supplemental to the main academic year reading group syllabus. Uh, which takes us on a kind of tour of the background from Marxism and then the history of Marxism up through the Frankfurt School, basically, up until the 60s. Um, so we have in the past also done summer reading groups on specialized topics like art. And uh, one of our first summer reading groups ever early on in our organization was on radical bourgeois philosophy which ended up being incorporated into uh, the main year uh, primary Marxist reading group, at least as a kind of preliminary set of weeks. Um, so we thought that, you know, by we, I mean uh, pedagogues and platypus thought that a missing piece was social theory um, and like classical bourgeois social theory, uh, which is a different trajectory than the one that we usually take in our academic year reading group, which really goes through political economy and uh, also kind of political liberalism, we might say, um, and the bourgeois revolutions, like the self-understanding of like the late 1700s. Um, but there is another trajectory coming out of Rousseau that uh, we felt we knew as pedagogues from our academic teaching 
and some of our students knew from being our academic students, but was missing in Platypus. So, uh, you know, this would be the 1800s, 19th century bourgeois social theory that comes out of the same tradition with Rousseau. So Rousseau can be seen as, you know, an Enlightenment philosopher who's an inspirer of the American and French revolutions in a political sense and as a social critic, but he's also a social theorist. It's the beginning of social theory. Um, you know, also influential for philosophy. So one thing that we do have in Platypus, at least to some degree, is the treatment of a parallel between philosophy and political economy, bourgeois philosophy and bourgeois political economy. But we don't have so much bourgeois social theory. And part of the reason for that is that it's contemporaneous with Marx and Marxism. Um, and a lot of it is uh, anti-Marxist, in fact. So Weber and Durkheim uh, are critics of Marxism and of socialism. But interestingly, the tradition of 19th century social theory into the 20th century with sociology actually comes out of the socialist movement. So Auguste Comte, who we'll be reading this summer, is a socialist. You know, he's associated with uh, Saint-Simonian utopian socialism. In some ways, he's part of a kind of pre-Marxian background, but he's also a contemporary of Marx and Engels. If we, if we think of, like, the critique of political economy, the critique of philosophy, and then the critique of socialism, that actually socialism is intimately connected as a movement with the rise of social theory. So this missing piece, and when we discuss politics in Platypus, when we talk about the history of capitalism and the history of the socialist movement, we might take certain things for granted that we can't take for granted, namely, what is society itself? And I'll say that one of our members, uh, Jensen Souther, who specializes in philosophy and the relationship between philosophical questions and Marxism, one of his criticisms, so part of what motivated this, this set of readings, is that Marxism might end up treating philosophy as diluted social theory. And so I thought, well, first we have to know what social theory is before we can say that Marxists are guilty of treating philosophy as diluted social theory. And, you know, to even say, okay, social theory, a theory of society, that might still presuppose that we know what society itself is. It goes back to Rousseau, it goes back to the general will, it goes back to this fundamental bourgeois conception that society is more than the sum of its parts. So it's the original vision of bourgeois society as cooperation, that it's not just a collection of people, it's not just a collection of individual human beings acting in their self-interest, but it's, it's something that transcends them. And this is, of course, where we get the idea of the transcendental subject in Kant, and where we get the notion of Geist in Hegel. We also, in Platypus, emphasize a great deal on freedom, on capitalism as a form of unfreedom, and I think that most people colloquially understand freedom to be a matter of individual liberty. So it's the freedom of human beings. But really, we always emphasize social freedom, and I think that ends up being a kind of an opaque term to people, meaning the freedom of society itself. You know, that society itself has freedom and it has unfreedom. 
Uh, capitalism is the unfreedom of society. It's not just the unfreedom of human beings in society, but it's the unfreedom of society itself. And again, that, that presupposes that there is such a thing as society. You know, Margaret Thatcher infamously said, there is no such thing as society. There's just individuals and families, interesting families, as some kind of basic social unit. There's no such thing as society. Society is a kind of a fiction. Well, Marxism is presupposed on the idea that actually there is such a thing as, as society. Society exists. It's not reducible to its individual members. It certainly isn't reducible to human beings. And that is what is free and also unfree in history and in capitalism, you know, society itself. So we wanted to basically expose our students to a way of thinking that has really fallen out of style. So in academic sociology and political science now, things are very quantitative. There really isn't any social theory. Uh, probably the only academic discipline that social theory still exists within is anthropology. Those of us who were the first pedagogues in Platypus all have the experience of teaching this material, teaching social theory, uh, academically. And some of the first students in Platypus did have exposure to that academic teaching of social theory. As time has gone on, fewer and fewer Platypus members um, actually do have that background, and so we thought that we would formalize it. I should also say in the past we've had reading groups that are not Marxist, so we've had reading groups just on anarchism, for example. We're doing something similar here in that it will be framed in some important ways and it will conclude with some Marxism, namely the Frankfurt School, but we're really going to let bourgeois sociology and bourgeois social theory speak for itself. And so in that way, of course, these thinkers are symptomatic. In other words, Marxists would have a critical theory of sociology, of bourgeois social theory. Um, but first we have to know what it is before we can introduce the Marxist critique of it. Okay, um, I was... I was looking into the syllabus and you were mentioning um, some some authors that we will read. Mm -hmm. So Gillian Rose, mm -hmm. Weber, um, Comte, Durkheim and Herbert Spencer. And there is your essay on Back to Herbert Spencer mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. as a required background reading. Mm -hmm. And I think... Um, Yeah, it, it's it's really good in underlining what you what you were just uh, talking about is the finishing line. Um, the the line you were with which you end your essay is there is this this picture of Marx's grave and uh, watching directly to the grave of Her Herbert Spencer in London. Mm -hmm. So you finish your essay um, with I will quote you. Um, only by returning to the assumptions of classical liberalism can we understand Marx's critique of it. The glare of Marx's thumb at Highgate stares down upon a very determinate object. If one disappears, they both do. I think this is really, this highlights what you were just uh, talking and really why this um, essay is chosen as required background reading um, for, for the summer reading group. Mm -hmm. And another preliminary reading is Benjamin Constant mm -hmm. um, on the liberty of the ancients compared with um, that of the moderns. And it seems that today the only um, evolved right um, is willing to say certain things about society. 
whereas the Democrats and the left might hotels um, the Democrats take them more and more for granted or confuses modernity with the liberty of the ancients. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that. We're reading basically 19th century and turn of the 20th century social theory. So contemporaries of Marx in his own lifetime, Comte and Herbert Spencer, and then Weber and Durkheim really as uh, contemporaries of Marxism, the Marxist movement at the end of the 1800s and the early 1900s. And so, you know, in this respect, 20th century sociology, what could be termed Cold War sociology, right? So there's, there's a kind of resurrection of these contemporaries of Marx as an alternative to Marx in the 20th century. And Adorno, who's on the syllabus as well, we have his Introduction to Sociology lectures, and we also have his essay on society, And we have the Frankfurt School's own, like, handbook on sociology called Aspects of Sociology. Adorno was a professor of philosophy and sociology at the University of Frankfurt. He had that dual appointment. And I think most people forget the, about his being a professor of sociology. He's known for his aesthetic work and his, his work on philosophy He's less known as professor of social theory, not so much sociology as social theory, although he himself was, you could say, a practicing sociologist. He did do empirical social research. You know, again, the connection between sociology and philosophy, that for Adorno, they're really two sides of the same coin, meaning they have the same object, society as an object, and we could say metaphysics as an object. You know, if we say you know, philosophy is concerned with metaphysical questions, social theory is concerned with, like, social forms, and, you know, really they aren't two separate objects. They're two sides of the same object. And that's also true for Marx. In other words, that's not something that the Frankfurt School invented, but it's something that was also true for Marx. It's also interesting that Herbert Spencer is, like, a sociologist, but he's known at the time, contemporaneously, in his lifetime, he's a philosopher. And that's a kind of a late phenomenon of something found much earlier. We always like to point out that Adam Smith is not an economist, but a philosopher, a moral philosopher, and moral philosophy and practical philosophy, you know, being understood as, as equivalent terms. Um, so, you know, again, it's a, it's a piece that's there, and when we think about it, There are, of course, other thinkers, other theorists of capitalism, of modern society, alongside Marx. And they are parallel tracks, sometimes ignorant of each other, sometimes not so ignorant of each other, carrying on, but with the same object in view, namely capitalist society. Sociology is itself a symptom of capitalism, meaning how and why does society become a kind of an object? And, you know, Lukács talks about it in terms of like a reified object that we could imagine treating as like a natural object, even though it's something that we ourselves are participants in and, and creators of. Jillian Rose, who's on the syllabus, at least part of her book, you know, really just the beginning and the end of her Hegel Contra Sociology, because, again, she thinks that sociology is a kind of disintegrated fragment of a more kind of comprehensive way of thinking. And so 
you know, Hegel contra sociology, what it means is that Hegel gives you kind of the whole picture and sociology just gives you a kind of disintegrated piece of the picture. And that that disintegration is itself something that one would have to reflect upon rather than just accepting. There are many ways of coming at this, but we try to set it up in our summer reading by, you know, again, posing this question, what is society and what does the study of society mean? I'll say one other thing about positivism. So this is a kind of a buzzword in the Frankfurt School, their critique of positivism. That doesn't mean like just a methodology, right? It means that positivism, especially coming out of social theory and sociology, Auguste Comte as the inventor of positivism, that positivism is, a, is an authentic symptom of modern life and thought. Uh, so it's not just something that, you know, the Frankfurt School are like anti-positivist in some methodological way. They're not. They have a critique of positivism as a, a real phenomenon of capitalism. So like I said, it goes back to Lukács and the critique of reification. You know, Lukács has a lot of discussion in the readings that we do about how society and history appear in reified forms and how that's a symptom of capitalism. You know, again, this is a sort of an abiding piece of the puzzle through all of our readings in, in Platypus, we finally are coming around to including it. Is it motivated by anything in particular this year, to get back to your, maybe your first question? It's not motivated by any, like, anniversary or, or anything like that. In part, it's motivated by the fact that society itself has been thrown into question again in the last two years with the COVID pandemic and, you know, this phenomenon of social isolation and the ongoing political crisis of neoliberalism. You know, you mentioned that the right sometimes will think about these things, um, but they'll usually talk about it in terms of, like, culture, Western culture or Western civilization. You know, they'll have these kind of notions, these metaphysical objects. Mostly people on the left and people who think of themselves as Marxists just dismiss those as ideological in a kind of pejorative sense. But, you know, what if there is such a thing as Western civilization, Western culture? I mean, however, being, you know, misrecognized through those terms, meaning maybe there really is bourgeois society and there really is, therefore, you know, capitalism, that this is a real thing, even if it's being misrecognized. And so how do we begin to think about it and not recognize it properly, but rather understand the, the true nature of that misrecognition? Again, like the Marxist critique of ideology is not that ideology is somehow not real, um, but that it is real, even if it's an obscure expression of a reality. In the intellectual culture today, especially in the last 50 or 60 years, but maybe even more recently with the end of history, with the collapse of the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, that there's been a move away from, and you, know, you get it with postmodernism, some substitute ideas, like you might get like biopolitics or something with Foucault, right? Or, you know, discourse, right? You get kind of post-structuralist ideas of like, well, everything's like language, discourse. Another point on the Cold War sociology issue is that the Cold War forced the West to defend itself. It forced the West to say, we, we are this thing, right? And to try to specify what this thing is. Um, so even if, even if uh, politically motivated in a kind of more rank ideological sense, 
they were still forced to say, actually, we have a, another way of thinking about society that is broader and more profound than Marxism, right? And so we have, we have an alternative account, and really an account of the totality. And this is where vulgar Marxism plays a role, namely that uh, Cold War sociology, so-called, or social theory, was offered as, well, Marxism is like economics, and it's like economic determinism, uh, economic reductionism, or class reductionism, Whereas uh, it seemed like bourgeois social theory, contemporary with Marx and Marxism, aims at a, at a more profound grasp of the totality of social relations. We have to sort of address that, because otherwise people are a little disarmed. And they do think that political economy is some kind of very kind of severe form of social theory or something. There is such a thing as society from a Marxist perspective. We shouldn't cede that ground. We shouldn't say, okay, you know, we're just interested in the economy and capitalism as an economic system, and that's what everything's boiled down to. It really leaves you disarmed in the face of real broader societal issues and societal problems and other manifestations of the contradiction of capitalism. I was watching recently Glenn Lowry's What is Social Science? And I was a little afraid to watch it because I thought, okay, Glenn, Glenn Lowry is an economist. And, uh, but, but it was interesting. He said that social science is the study of human behavior that's not reducible to psychology. Right? So it's, it's structures. I mean, he used the example of the market. He said people's behavior in the market cannot be reduced to, to psychology, that there's this other thing. There's actually, you know, a structuring principle, etc. And around the same time that I was watching this video, I was also getting ready to teach Freud's question of a Weltanschung to my clinical social worker students. And there Freud says there are only two sciences, natural science and psychology. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, because, of course, Freud would think that social science is essentially a study of psychology. And I thought, well, okay, that's natural for Freud to see it that way, but actually Marxism would not see it that way. Especially in the question of Weltanschauung, one of the ways that Freud sort of staves off Marx and Marxism is to say, well, it's, it's this Hegelian philosophy that I've never understood. Um, another character that we have in the mix in the background is Nietzsche, who's basically the inspiration for Weber, um, where Nietzsche describes himself not as a philosopher, but as a psychologist. The kind of metaphysical questions of humanity and society are essentially questions of psychology. I, I have a question about a... Uh, opposite mm -hmm. or mirrored phenomena, mm -hmm. which is of Marx as a sociologist. Ah, right? okay. Because uh -huh. there's this, you know, what we're trying to, um, I guess, address is this lack of understanding of social theory. Um, and we're trying to provide kind of like the, the you know, emergent social theory as a contemporaneous um, and taken for granted mm -hmm. kind of like baseline. Mm -hmm. way of understanding the world mm -hmm. but actually what I, I think the the way that I've always encountered 
Marx, at least when I first encountered Marx, was through my sociology class. Oh wow! Okay. And I'm actually thinking of this of this alternate phenomena of Marx being reduced to just a social theorist. Well, actually, maybe maybe my my question would be: Would is Marx the sociologist a reduction? Uh huh. Um, and can we speak to actually how this is symptomatic both of the mm. academy in the '60s, right? Because mm. like the, I I think. Marx's introduction into the sociological canon is during that new left term, when kind of the students are demanding that they are Marx and these radicals get like be included. Yeah, get mm. fed into the canon, mm-hmm. um, as well as a the more recent phenomena of Marx the sociologist being revived in this post Bernie Sanders downturn of the millennial left, oh. right? Or maybe not. I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, but I I think there's definitely that that feeling of. Everyone's turning to Marx as someone that can explain what society is on, in, a, in a positive way. That's right. Um, so Marx becomes a kind of alternative or rival positive social science, positive social theory. So my old professor, Moish Postom, and several of us in Platypus learned how to teach under Moish Postom. He was first hired originally at the University of Chicago in the sociology department. But because he was a Marx scholar, he was excluded from uh, earning tenure there. So he ended up being uh, given tenure in the history department instead, basically as an intellectual historian. But it was precisely to exclude Marx as a legitimate social theorist or as a legitimate sociologist. So the idea is that Marx is an important thinker, but that's more a matter of intellectual history than it is of actual sociology or social theory, right? So again, it would be this idea that like Marx doesn't have a social theory, that he kind of presupposes things. He's kind of unoriginal, you know, um, you know that he, it's based on bourgeois political economy. It's based on you know essentially bourgeois social theory of a certain primitive kind, but not you know it, uh, that there's you know I don't know more profound questions raised by Comte and Spencer and. Vapor and Durkheim. Marx as a social theorist is usually set up as a kind of a straw man to be taken down by the other social theorists. If he's allowed to be a social theorist at all, he's a theorist of class in a pretty simple-minded way. Yeah, he's, he's seen as like a poor political philosopher and a poor social theorist. Right, so he'll be included only because of the importance of Marxism as an empirical fact in modern history. But his thought will be seen as not particularly profound in that respect. Yeah, so I'm used to a kind of quantification of the social sciences that may not be universally true in academia around the world. I tend to think that it is true, though. I mean, in other words, maybe in Europe they still teach social theory, but then I think actually in Europe they've really technicized the university even more than in in America. It's called econometrics. Right, the sort of econometrics and political science and, and sociology. Um, but yeah, so in other words, poor social theory, uh, Marxism would be seen as, and um, insofar as it is a social theory, it's like an economic theory of society, right? And that's like positive knowledge, right? So like a, a Marxist like sociology or a Marxist history would be a kind of economic account of things. That would be the way that it's seen, rather than trying to grasp like society itself. So one of the ways that we talk about it in Platypus is social relations, 
in other words, what social relations are, that they might be more than just the interactions of human beings. You know, and society is more than just a collection of people and the conventions that they have for uh, interacting with each other. But that society might be a transcendental subject, more than the sum of its parts, a thing. I would say that you don't get that foregrounded in Marx and Engels' own writings. You don't. And so you could easily misread them to think of society as just a collection of individuals. Human beings with material needs that are driving their self-interest. Rather than treating it in terms of philosophy, because even then it would be like philosophy would just be a way of thinking by human beings, rather than philosophy having an actual kind of object, kind of you know, geist, a geistic object, um, a kind of social metaphysics. All right, so all of this tends to be a blind spot on the left. I would say in general, the new left, I don't think, did a terribly good job of that. I think there was a degradation of it. So it was something that maybe was downplayed in the history of Marxism, owing to Marx and Engels' own writings, but then becomes a kind of a, I would say mostly taken up on the avowed right. And then the new left uh, comes in with like new social movements, and that's where you get this kind of idea of like, I don't know, like racism or sexism or patriarchy, right? Like these kinds of ideas about, you know, the essence of society, right? Um, that when people realize that capitalism is not simply a phenomenon reducible to manifest economic phenomena, right? It's not just readable in terms of the money economy then people go reaching for other things. It's an obscure aspect of Marxism that we're trying to recover, and we're being guided, I suppose, by the Frankfurt School. Right? I would say that the Frankfurt School is, is very strongly guiding us back to this neglected dimension of Marxism. And in the usual way that people think of the Frankfurt School, in the kind of mistaken way, they usually think the Frankfurt School is like supplementing Marxism with other things. So they're supplementing Marxism with Freud, or they're supplementing Marxism with Weber, or they're supplementing Marxism with Durkheim, you know, because Adorno is always addressing Durkheim. Um, and there's a critique of positivism, but they're offering a kind of alternative methodology to thinking about society to the positivist's uh, sociology. Um, but that's, that's really a mistake because the Frankfurt School were Marxists. In other words, they, they're drawing from the history of Marxism um, in addressing these uh, other ways of thinking about things as themselves like ideological as themselves uh, kind of a symptom of capitalism. I think that part of what motivated us to try to teach this this summer is just exposure to a different way of thinking, a different way of talking about things, a different way of looking at things. Because if you haven't read social theory, classical social theory, it really is a different way of talking about things than you'll find anywhere else. Predominantly, it's found in academic culture now and anthropology could also see it in, I don't know, a uh, study of religion. So, you know, again, the idea that there is this kind of transcendental subject to society 
it's a curious phenomenon. Generally, in the neoliberal era, it's been neglected. It might come back now, again, kind of unfortunately on the right. Maybe it's going to come back on the right, that people are going to assert the kind of reality of a social metaphysics. And the only thing the left is going to be able to do is say, well, that's a mystification of something that's really an economic process. And it's like, well, no, actually, the economy is also an expression of society. It's not like society is just an economic process. It's rather that the economy is one way that society is expressed alongside politics and culture, and philosophy, etc. Religion. Ideology. And so it goes back to ideology critique. Um, and again, that aspect of Marxism that tends to be neglected. Okay, Chris, can't thank you enough for, for coming on to the podcast, taking some time to maybe get us ready for the summer. Uh Um, So we're going to link the syllabus of the summer reading group Mm -hmm. into the podcast description. Mm -hmm. And for more information on how to join the reading group with the chapter in your area, uh, as well as information about any other online reading groups, please visit platypus1917.org. I know there are a lot of online at-large reading groups. So if you don't have a local chapter, you can, we, there's, there will be some kind of zoom thing um, going on there as well. Um, so thanks for coming again, and thanks for putting the syllabus together along with the other kind of pedagogues at Aplodipus. Cool. Good talking with you. Thank you. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Villaggi. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication, The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye!
Thank you.